This is Dr. Jonathan Jun, and I'm delighted today to be hosting a podcast with Dr. Beth Mallow. Dr. Mallow is an expert in pediatric sleep disorders. She's at Vanderbilt Sleep Center. She's the endowed chair of childhood cognitive development there, professor of neurology and pediatrics, and also director of the Vanderbilt Sleep Division. Dr. Mallow has extensive experience in sleep disorders in childhood with a specific emphasis on autism and its impact on sleep disorders. Dr. Mallow, thank you so much for being with us today for this podcast. Let me start by just asking you to tell me briefly about yourself, how you came to be interested in the topic of sleep and autism. Sure. So I am a uh, neurologist. I'm a sleep neurologist, and I've always been interested in in kids and in insomnia, but um, when my oldest son was diagnosed with autism at about three years old, I remembered my sleep specialist colleagues saying, you know, this is an area that really needs a lot of attention. There's not a lot of people working in sleep and autism. Kids with autism don't sleep well. You know, so I I read more about it, and it was interesting because at the time, my older son was actually a fairly good sleeper, so I didn't quite understand why there was such a need, but then I read that many other kids, you know, about um, 40 to 80% of children with autism do not sleep well. So I came to realize this was an area that I could really make an impact in. Very interesting. You have a vested interest in the topic. Maybe you can help review, for those of us that aren't thinking about this all the time, the heterogeneity of the autism spectrum and the, and the prevalence of this condition. Sure. So it is very common. It, you know, when my son was diagnosed in 2000, 2001, it was about one in um, 150, but now it's one in 68. So it's really increased in prevalence. Uh, and we don't know. You know, there's a lot of controversy about whether it's really increased in prevalence or people are just more aware of it, you know, whether milder forms are being diagnosed. But in any case, we know that it's very common. It's actually the most common neurodevelopmental condition disorder. And um, and as I said, not every child with autism sleeps poorly. Some actually sleep fine. Uh, it's about two-thirds on average when you look at the studies have poor sleep. There's a lot of variability in, let's say, IQ. Some kids have normal or even superior IQ. Some have associated intellectual disability. Uh, verbal skills can be very varied. Some children have minimal or no verbal skills. Other Others can be quite fluent, although sometimes uh, their use of language is somewhat atypical. So there's a lot of uh, variability, which makes it a challenging d- disorder to diagnose and um, and think about treatment in. So that's a pretty staggering statistic that there are that many with these autism spectrum disorders and and the prevalence of the sleep problems within that. So I'm wondering, what are some of the issues that these kids and the parents face that make the sleep so challenging? Right. So the biggest concern that parents have is insomnia, which is difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep. 
And it often can take the form of the kids taking hours to settle down and fall asleep, and they may exhibit a lot of bedtime resistance and and fussiness and yelling and screaming while they're trying to fall asleep. As they get older, it may not be that much resistance, but more that they're just up till 1 or 2 or 3 or even later in the morning playing video games and doing other things because they're just not ready for sleep. And there's also night wakings. Once a child does fall asleep, they may wake up frequently throughout the night. Uh, Early morning awakenings where they sleep a certain number of hours and then they're done sleeping is also very common. So there's different manifestations, but the most common problem seems to be insomnia. And then you know, everything else that we see in the typical population, whether it be restless legs, sleep apnea, parasomnia is like sleepwalking. We also see in autism, but not to the same extent as the insomnia. Now, in terms of the onset of the age of the problem, I don't know if there's any data on this, but I guess speaking to like your own experience where your son at the time of the diagnosis seemed to be fine and the sleep problems came later, is there... Any notion about how common these problems emerge over time, uh, or is it something that often occurs at a young age, or maybe it develops more in the teen years? Yeah, so we we feel, based on the data that we've seen, that sleep is pretty pervasive. Like it, when you're younger, you have sleep problems. When you're older, you have sleep problems. It may take different forms. Like I mentioned, the really little kids may have the bedtime resistance and the fussing and the yelling and the screaming while the older kids just go to bed go to bed later you know so there there's even a question of whether there could be some circadian factors where you know if the older kids are going able to control what time they go to bed and they go to bed more like 2 or 3 in the morning they may actually be able to fall asleep fairly easily not in every case, but in, in some cases we'll see that. So I think that the short answer is the sleep problems don't go away as the child gets older, but they may take a different form, for example, a later bedtime to kind of compensate for the difficulty falling asleep. Now, you had mentioned earlier that that the autism spectrum is a very broad one, and there are kids with a lot of challenges and their kids on the higher functioning end, I guess what might have at one time been called Asperger's syndrome. Is there any data about how the level of function is associated with the level of sleep dysfunction? A fair statement to make is that regardless of level of function, we still see sleep problems. So in many neurodevelopmental disorders, the sleep problem tends to parallel the severity of the sleep problem tends to parallel the severity, for example, of the intellectual disability. But in autism, we actually see even kids who are high, what we would call high-functioning, let's say normal or high intelligence, normal or high verbal skills, can still have sleep problems. And what it, we oftentimes see is those kids are our little worriers. You know, they're very anxious. They have a lot of fears. Um, they're able to articulate their problems, but they um, still have sleep problems, while those with minimal verbal skills or intellectual disability may be the ones to, um, 
you know, have sleep problems and not be able to kind of explain that they're not ready to go to bed or, you know, that not be able to settle themselves to sleep like somebody with more verbal skills. So, again, it's one of those situations where it's pretty pervasive regardless of intellectual disability or level of of verbal skills. We do see sleep problems kind of across the spectrum. That makes sense. Uh, Dr. Mallow, can you help us understand some of the consequences? Yeah, so the consequences include really very similar consequences to what we see in the general population, but if you start with the fact that individuals on the spectrum already have susceptibility to, let's say, irritability, ADHD, aggression, um, you know, difficulty kind of with emotional regulation, and then you throw in a sleep problem, it's going to make things even worse. So like you and I, if we haven't slept well, we may be more irritable or grouchy or grumpy or tend to send a nasty email. But if you think about somebody with autism who is already having trouble controlling their emotions or, or processing the stimuli around them and they have a sleep problem, they're going to be even more vulnerable and susceptible to it. So that's how I kind of like think about it. Um, So the consequences are, I mean, we really see everything, um, ADHD, difficulty, um, controlling one's emotions, um, feeling more irritable, feeling more moody, feeling more anxious, you know, a lot of psychiatric symptoms that we see in the general population when one doesn't sleep well are are amplified in autism. That kind of addresses what I was planning to ask next, and I have a feeling I know the answer, but I want your expert take on it. Um, there's always the question of what's the chicken or the egg? Is the sleep making these kids have more problems with their autism, or is the autism messing with their sleep, or is it probably bidirectional? Uh, can you help us maybe tease that out a bit? I think it probably is bidirectional. I think that, I mean, let's take anxiety, for example. If you're anxious, you may have more trouble sleeping because you're scared, you're afraid to go to sleep, you're afraid of, you know, the monster in the closet, let's say. But if you're not sleeping well, it can also make you more susceptible to anxiety. And people have actually shown that when you're sleep-deprived, the parts of the brain that manage anxiety, like the amygdala, have increased activity. So it really can be bidirectional. And, you know, sometimes I also think there could be a third factor, which is the autism itself, you know, and the... um let's say the level of severity of the autism could be driving both the sleep problem as well as some of the psychiatric symptoms. So it's really hard to tease out, and that's why I think we're going to talk later about what I'm working on. I'm a big believer in the um, idea of, you know, interventional studies. So I believe that the best way to figure out the chicken and the egg is to actually intervene and to take someone, for example, who's anxious and not sleeping well and try to improve their sleep and see if you can improve their anxiety through through improving their sleep, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you can show us one day about that. I take it then that there isn't much data right now 
interventional research data about treating a sleep disorder specifically in, an, in the autism spectrum and then looking at a cognitive outcome? We have some data on when we improve sleep, we see improvement in behaviors. Um, we have not, I have not seen as much data in terms of cognitive outcome. I think it tends to be more related to behavioral outcomes. What I've personally seen is that, that kids are much less irritable and um, calmer when you know, they've slept when, when we've intervened with, you know, either melatonin or behavioral interventions and they're sleeping better. Mm-hmm. Based on that promise that maybe there's going to be some benefit from a behavioral standpoint, do you think we should be screening kids with autism for a sleeping disorder? You know, when they first show up to see a specialist, um, you know, is this something that everyone should be asking about versus waiting for the parent probably I do. I do. We actually, um, we published a paper uh, where we put forth an algorithm in kind of a practice pathway, and we really feel that every child with autism should be screened for sleep problems, even if it's just a simple question that the parents asked about how well their child is sleeping. You know, are they falling asleep? Okay. Are they waking up at night? Are they co-sleeping? Because we are we do feel it's it's kind of low lang- low hanging fruit in a way if there's so many different ways you can treat sleep effectively and it can make such a difference for the child in terms of their overall functioning and it's not like we have all of these drugs for autism to help behavior a lot of them you know there are a lot of them that have been ineffective or if they are effective they have side effects so the ability to improve a child's daytime functioning, not to mention the parents' daytime functioning, if they're sleeping better, right, through improving sleep in the child is can be huge. So, um, yeah, we, we really advocate that. If if a physician or a, a provider can, can ask a few questions about sleep and then just do a few simple interventions, it can make a huge difference for the child and the family. Great. I will provide a link to this uh, publication later, Dr. Mallow. If you send that to me, then people can access that online next to our podcast. Uh, you, you did start to delve a little bit into the specifics of some strategies, so I'm curious. Maybe you can talk next about behavioral techniques uh, or pharmacotherapy, like you mentioned melatonin. Do you have any data about how efficacious these are uh, or maybe just some anecdotes about what you've seen uh, as far as a response to these different therapies? Yeah, I have done my own work in melatonin. We, we've participated in some trials that we initiated. I also worked with a um, pharmaceutical company, and then I've also, of course, reviewed the literature. And I've been really impressed that melatonin is safe, um, it's effective. It is important that as physicians and healthcare providers, we train parents to read the labels carefully because because it's not regulated by the FDA. You have to be careful about Benadryl being mixed in, you know, or other things. But um, in general, I've I found melatonin to be a really good option for um, for those with autism who don't sleep, particularly if they have trouble falling asleep. There are also some extended release brands that are showing promise for staying asleep. 
those oftentimes involve, you know, having to swallow a capsule whole though, right? So those can be a little bit more challenging. So melatonin is, is kind of my mainstay. I start there. I think it's fairly benign. It's it's oftentimes effective. Um, and then there are other medicines that we'll sometimes try. For example, I've had a lot of success with gabapentin, which comes in both liquid and pill forms, and I don't have any conflict of interest with gabapentin. I, have, I don't do any trials with gabapentin. I don't hold any stock in that. And then I'm also a big believer of behavioral approaches, you know, implementing uh, a calming, soothing bedtime routine, focusing on what's going on with a child, you know, during the day, making sure that, you know, they have enough exercise, you limit screen time, you minimize caffeine, all those things. Um, You put a relaxing bedtime routine into place. In fact, we advocated in our practice pathway that you start with the behavioral interventions and then basically if you are going to use a medicine like melatonin or gabapentin or something stronger that you try to do it in conjunction with um, you know, with the medication because it will be more effective that way. Great. Maybe you can uh, provide us a little more detail on what, what are some... Um things you're working on next in the, both pharmacotherapy or whatever other aspects you're, you're examining in sleep and autism? I am very interested in um, trying to figure out how we can make our work accessible to as many kids as possible. And I'm very interested in dissemination. So, for example, how do we disseminate to the general public, to providers, you know, all of these helpful hints that I've given you, like how do we bring them to life? How do we work with a family to get them to actually, you know, implement a bedtime routine? You know, so what, I'm kind of doing this in different ways. One is I've I've always been very active with Autism Speaks, and the, we have something called the Autism Treatment Network, which is focused, it's a network focused on, improving the medical care of, of children with autism throughout North America. So right now we're involved in a project where we're trying to take some of the materials that we've developed, like we have pamphlets and toolkits online for free to families and turning them into videos and really trying to figure out how do we reach people in a in a way that will really grab them and, and get them involved and, and excited about implementing these tools. And then, you know, I'm also doing a more elaborate study with community providers, you know, to be able to say, here's a pediatrician's office, here's a therapist in the community, how do we pair up the two and get the, you know, get the family involved so that if a pediatrician has a child who isn't sleeping well, we can get the parents to a therapist who's been trained in behavioral sleep education through our principles, you know, to be able to to work with the family. Um, and we've been seeing promising results in, in that way. Um, I'm also very interested in the genetics of sleep and autism and trying to understand, you know, can we predict potentially which kids are going to do well with a behavioral intervention, which kids are going to need melatonin, which kids are going to need a stronger medicine, you know, based on their genetics. Um, That is more of a long-term project because we haven't even figured out the genetics of autism, right? So (laughs) figuring out the genetics of sleep and autism is going to be 
a a steep um, bar to get over, but um, those are some of the things that interest me right now. Great. I thought of one other question before we wrap up, which is I know that many kids with autism also have other comorbid disorders like attention deficit hyperactivity, and they might be on stimulant medication for something like ADD or ADHD. Um, do you feel that those stimulant medications commonly perturb the, the sleep? Yeah, I mean, they can. I think that using them in the morning and restricting them to the morning is usually pretty successful. Um, I think that actually making sure a child has stimulant medicines on board if they need them can actually promote sleep because then they can be, you know, more functional during the day. And then when it's time for them to go to bed, they're ready to go to bed. But I agree, if you take those stimulant medicines too late in the day, you know, particularly in the afternoon or, you know, close to dinner time, they can still hang around when the child's trying to fall asleep and that can interfere with sleep. So, you know, before reaching for the stimulant medicines, you know, I would challenge all the providers to first ask about sleep because sometimes sleep problems can contribute to attention deficit and you wouldn't want to treat a sleep problem with a stimulant when the root cause is actually the sleep problem, if that makes sense. That's very good advice. Dr. Mallow, I want to thank you on behalf of the ATSSRN for taking the time to speak with me today about this really important topic of sleep disorders and autism. I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have as well. You're so welcome.